the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Sponsored by the Law Office of Robert Bergman. Welcome to Plan Your Estate Radio with your host, San Jose Estate Planning Attorney Bob Bergman. Bob's been practicing law for over 30 years and is certified by the State Bar of California as a legal specialist in estate planning trust and probate law. Bob is here to help you set your house in order with valuable insights you can use today to prepare a better tomorrow for your loved ones. And now your host for Plan Your Estate Radio, Attorney Bob Bergman. Good afternoon, Bay Area. This is Bob Bergman broadcasting from my office here in San Jose. It's been um, a pretty eventful week. First of all, I'd like to give a shout-out to the weather for not uh, roasting us this week like we were roasted last week. It's been a pretty pleasant week, and uh, I hope you all have been able to avoid extremes of temperature here in the Bay Area. I found it to be much more comfortable with this kind of weather. It's kind of the reason why I live here in the Santa Clara Valley is to have weather like we've had this past week. Now, I want to let you all know ahead of time that... I may or may not be broadcasting live next Friday, and I definitely will not be broadcasting live the following Friday, uh, the week of the July 4th. And the reason for that is very straightforward. Uh, this Two weeks from now, I will be out of town and actually returning from a vacation with my family, so I won't be able to broadcast live. But I guarantee that I will have something up there that uh, will be useful information for you regardless. If you'd like to call in to the show today with any questions, uh, the number is 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220. I apologize. have a little bit of a, of a frog in my throat today. I'm trying to get that out, and I may be a little squeaky and creaky on the show today, and I ask for your indulgence. Again, 800-516-1220. You can also email questions to me at radio at lawbob.com. Now, I'm going to continue today with questions and comments from around the state of California. Um, This is basically a series of questions that people rise, uh, that rise up around the state of California, where people want to actually know... um, answers to questions that they have in the area of estate planning. So I'm going to jump into that right now. So here's someone out of San Diego said their dad died recently and the trustee failed to notify any of the beneficiaries of the death. Well, let's start right there. There's actually a legal requirement that the trustee of a trust that has become irrevocable has to notify all of the beneficiaries of the trust and offer to provide them with a copy of the terms of the trust. Um, in, in the usual situation, 
the notice is sent out. It's a prescribed notice in the probate code that uh, provides a copy of the trust at the same time. In this case, the beneficiary, who's also the trustee, refuses to share any information about dad's death and has not provided a copy of the trust agreement. So I contacted the trust attorney and was told that it was being processed. The other parent is already deceased. That would explain why this is now an irrevocable trust. If the mother was still alive, it might there might not actually be an irrevocable trust that came into existence because of the death of the father. Now, being processed might mean that they're pulling together all the information and they're about to send out notice to everybody in the prescribed form. What I would say here is that um, that the refusal to share info, uh, that could just mean, look, um, I'm not going to give you anything until we have everything to provide to you. Otherwise, it could be uh, confusing if you're getting bits and pieces of information instead of everything all at once. If it's been months and months and months since Dad died, here it says he died recently, then I might be a little more concerned about copies of things not being shared yet. But if it's been recently, I will tell you it often takes time to get things started, even the administration of a trust, which is often uh, much more um, more simple to administer and can be administered more quickly generally than a probate administration. Now, here's someone who said they've been on SSDI for over 10 years and just received $120,000 from Dad's trust, and I put it into an investment fund. The question is, will this disqualify me from getting extra help for a medication that I need that costs $5,000 a month? Well, if in fact this person is on SSDI, which is uh, disability income, um, that particular money program that pays out to people who are disabled um, is not a needs-based program, meaning that you could be receiving SSDI even if you were a multimillionaire as long as you either qualify to uh, otherwise qualify to receive that payment from the government. It's actually an insurance program that we pay into. If you uh, look on your paycheck, you'll probably see a line item for SDI, which is basically what that's all about. Now, if the person was receiving SSI, no D in there, that is a needs-based program that is basically income for those who cannot generate an income themselves and who don't have assets that they own other than a few ones that are excluded from consideration for SSI eligibility. In this case, this person is probably okay as long as they're actually receiving SSDI and not SSI. Okay, now here's a here's a question here. Does a life insurance policy and retirement account need to be listed in a living trust or will or do I just need to elect the beneficiary for each and that it's separate from the living trust and will? Well, my practice as an attorney is to always identify any life insurance policies and retirement accounts that someone owns by listing them on a schedule of assets that identifies them as things owned by the person 
<clears throat> that might end up payable to their trust, and and as such, I identify them so that anyone taking over knows that those assets actually exist. In general, though, uh, you could have a living trust own an insurance policy and then also have the trust itself be the beneficiary. I often recommend that people consider having their trust be the beneficiary of their life insurance rather than name a spouse or children directly. Um, The reason for that is primarily uh, because we want to make sure that the funds actually get distributed according to the wishes of the person who had the trust instead of maybe distributed in a different way because one or more beneficiaries of their life insurance has passed away. In the case of retirement plans, it's a little more complicated. In fact, I I don't have time to really go into the complication. Suffice it to say, you can name individual beneficiaries. You could name the trust as a beneficiary, and there's advantages and disadvantages to both. Um, You typically would not name life insurance or retirement plans in a will because both of those assets are intended to bypass completely the probate process. And by that, I mean they're not intended to go through the probate uh, process at all, which means you generally would not name them in a will. Now, if you've named a life insurance policy in a will, but you have a named beneficiary on that policy, I'll tell you right now, the will is not going to distribute that life insurance to someone other than the named beneficiary. Common mistake that people make, they list accounts and things in a will or even in a trust that have named beneficiaries, and they think that by listing them as a trust asset, it somehow is going to pass according to the trust. It's going to pass according to what the actual beneficiary says on that account. That's checking accounts, savings accounts, brokerage accounts, all kinds of things like that. So we're coming up on the first break. Uh, When we come back from the break, I'll continue with more questions and answers from around the state of California. This is attorney Bob Bergman. Talk with you after the break. This is Plan Your Estate Radio with San Jose estate planning attorney Bob Bergman on AM 1220 KDOW. Hi, welcome back. I'm uh, going to continue in the second segment of the show today with questions and answers from around the state of California. Uh, this one comes from Los Angeles, and uh, it's a spouse talking, saying, um, we've been married for seven years in California, and uh, my husband passed away this month. I found the insurance policy payment slip and gave the information to the mortuary to see who the beneficiary was for payment. I am not the beneficiary. I could, I believe it could be his older two daughters, and they're in the process of verifying the information. Question, do I have any rights to the policy if it was made before our marriage, but he was making payments during our marriage? Well, that's not so much an estate planning question as a family law question, but I can give at least an opinion on that. If the husband was making payments on the insurance policy and he was using money from the marriage, such as money from his paycheck in the marriage, 
money from his wife's paycheck in the marriage, money from investments they had together in the marriage to make those payments. Then from the time they got married, the wife started to get a community property interest in the insurance policy, including the proceeds of that policy. This is something I do bring up in uh, in a seminars in seminars that I do where I talk about you could actually have someone where there's a named beneficiary but the surviving spouse might have a claim under family law principles to some portion of that insurance policy uh all of this would be in the absence of some kind of property agreement between the husband and wife that spells out just what rights are um, in things like a life insurance policy that was owned before the marriage but continues on in the marriage and still has payments being made on it. So that is uh, kind of a shorthand there. situation like this, if you're in that situation, you should consult with a family lawyer immediately to see what can be done to preserve your rights in that insurance policy before it's actually paid out. Uh, I know the insurance company is going to need to be informed in some way that there may be a community property claim against a portion of the proceeds. Now, here's someone um, out of uh, the East Bay area. As the trustee of a special needs trust for my sister, um, can I obtain financing for a rental property within her trust? I'd like to purchase a rental property uh, via a 1031 exchange for an existing rental property currently within the trust. Now, a 1031 exchange is actually where you exchange one rental property for another rental property and you actually defer the taxable capital gain that might be in the first property by moving that um, gain into a new property and instead of actually selling the first property and buying a new property. Although there's no loan for the existing condo, I'd like to finance a portion of the cost of a more expensive condo with a mortgage because it would provide greater rental income for the trust. Without getting into the tax effects of a 1031 exchange and obtaining a mortgage as part of the acquisition of a new property, you can actually take and use property within a trust, a special needs trust, or an otherwise irrevocable trust, and buy new property, sell existing property, invest in different ways, as long as the trust document permits that kind of activity. If the trust says that the trustee may borrow, um, then that means you can borrow, you can take a loan out. If it says you may hypothecate, it means that you can actually give a loan on property owned by the trust. So pretty much most trusts are going to have the ability to do things like that. That's what I would expect to see. But ultimately, you have to go by what does the trust actually say in reference to that. Now here is, oh, this is a good one. This is a Proposition 13 exclusion situation. Dad died three years ago, left his home in a trust to brother number one exclusively as trustee. And let's pause right there. It's not clear from that whether or not the property is left 
in trust for brother number one or left it to brother number one. It says brother number one lived in the house and transferred the house into his own trust. Now that suggests that brother number one had the right with the property being left to him to transfer it into his own trust. Um, If he did not have the right to do that, there may be a problem there. He may have actually uh, transferred out of a trust where he didn't have the authority to do that. But let's set that to one side. He later died and left his trust equally to three siblings. One sibling wants to buy out the other two siblings. Can the sibling who wants to buy out claim a Prop 13 exclusion based on the original parent-to-sibling transfer? The short answer to this is absolutely not. Once a property is transferred to a sibling from a parent, that would qualify under actually Proposition 58 for a parent-to-child exclusion from reassessment of the property taxes. But once it's owned by a sibling, if it's then transferred to anyone else other than that sibling's own children or in some limited circumstances, grandchildren, then that will trigger a reassessment. So there's no way to leverage the first transfer from the parent to the first brother um, when there's a later transfer when that brother dies and passes things on to his siblings. That will not work. Here's a question. Uh, Mom died intestate. What happens to her real property? She never signed her trust. Well, if mom never signed her trust, then no trust exists. That's the first thing. This person's correct. Mom dies intestate. Intestate means you die without having any kind of will uh, or any kind of thing like a trust designed to avoid the probate process. Real property will have to go through the probate process in the county where mom was a resident. And that means typically about a year or more to actually um, have the property turned over to whoever is going to inherit it under the law. Or if they want to sell it, they may be able to sell it after they actually have someone appointed by the court to handle the probate estate. That still is probably going to take uh, a few months just to get into court, and then it could be sold. But the proceeds of the sale would still have to be held in uh, in the estate until the court says it can be distributed out. And that's after all creditors are paid and uh, things like that. Uh, Yet another reason to do a living trust, avoid the probate process. So we're at the halfway point of the show. I want to uh, let you know you can always call me at 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220. I am live today. So I'll talk with you after the break. This is attorney Bob Bergman. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio with attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, welcome back. Um, My number, if you want to call in with a question, is 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220. You could also email any questions you have to radio at lawbob.com. 
And uh, if you email there, I can check it during the show, maybe answer your question on the air. Continuing on with questions and comments from around the state of California, state of California. Ooh, tripping over my tongue today. That's not a good sign. <laughs> um, so here, um, there is, okay, here we have someone who has a, uh, there's a bank account. The bank saying, I need a document stating I have the rights to the property for a successor in interest. Um, so what do I need? Well, there's two possibilities. If the bank account is small enough and there's no other assets of the person who died that together collectively would exceed $150,000 in value, then you can do what's called an affidavit of small estate value, uh, which is uh, something available. You can download it from the Internet. Fill that out. Say the person's died. Here's a certified copy of their death certificate. And if there is no will um, and you're the only person who would inherit because you're the only intestate heir, then you could fill that out and they should turn it over to you. The other thing is if it's too large... If it's more than $150,000 or there's other assets involved, you're probably looking at a probate in the absence of having any kind of a beneficiary designation on that account. Some people will have bank accounts and brokerage accounts, and they do not put any beneficiary on those accounts designated where they want those accounts to go upon their death. And if that's the case, they may end up being paid to the person's probate estate. Here's someone who said, hey, accidentally shredded my original trust document. I know the attorney who prepared it. Is a copy acceptable in California? And what if they can't find it? It was prepared in 1996. 1996 is long enough ago that it may be there is no, um, there's no actual copy of it around. I would say that if you accidentally shredded your original trust, then you might want to redo, especially from 1996, you might want to consider having your trust redone and brought into the 21st century. I mean, that's a trust that is very, very old now. It looks like uh, 23 years old, if I'm my math is correct. Oh, maybe more than that. Let's see, 14... No, I take that back. It's um, 33 years old, and uh, it probably should be redone anyway. So in this case, I would say redo your trust. Keep the original name of the trust and the date of the trust. You probably have that on a deed or an account information somewhere. And update the whole thing. Then it doesn't matter if you accidentally shredded your original trust. Um, if, however, you shredded your original trust and you don't do anything, an argument could be made by people that you intended to revoke your trust because you shredded it. So I'd say get it redone, brought into the 21st century, redo everything and bring it up to date at the same time, and you'll solve a whole bunch of problems that way. Here's someone who said um, their their mother-in-law uh, has dementia. Uh, the mother-in-law's daughter uh, has power of attorney, but the daughter is a severe alcoholic, goes into rehab all the time, is not there to care for the mother, 
and leaves her alone many days. Recently has also been using the mother's money for herself. Granddaughter asked me to step in. This would actually be the daughter-in-law because she fears the money will be gone and grandma's not being cared for properly. Well, in a case like this, I'd start first possibly with Adult Protective Services and have them investigate. Um, I'm assuming that grandma is a, is a senior. Have that investigated, and they may be able to actually remove the daughter as being unfit to act in this capacity. And then the daughter-in-law who's asking this question should consider petitioning the court for conservatorship over her mother-in-law so that more formal action is taken and she can be protected in that way. That is what I would likely advise here. Now, for those of you out here, out there, I do not do conservatorship as part of my practice. If you have a situation like that in the Santa Clara Valley and you need help, you can contact me, but uh, I would likely refer you on to one of the attorneys I know locally that actually does conservatorship matters. Um, I don't do them myself. Now, here's a question. In the state of California, uh, mom has passed, dad is still alive. Am I entitled to have a copy of the trust? My sister is now the trustee of the trust. Well, the question becomes, um, has some part of the trust become irrevocable? If mom's death caused her share of the trust to become irrevocable, for example, going into a bypass trust or some other form of trust for the benefit of dad, then that means at that point in time, any beneficiary of that irrevocable part of the trust is entitled to a copy of the trust um, that is statutory. I've talked about this on other shows, but that would be a legal requirement. Uh, it's um, it's a, would be under 16061.7 of the probate code um, that would have that requirement. Strictly speaking, if the sister is taken over as the trustee because dad has become incapacitated, that means the entire trust is now irrevocable and all of the remainder beneficiaries of that trust are, I believe, this is my opinion, are entitled to a copy of the terms of the trust or a copy of the trust because the entire trust is now irrevocable, not just due to a death, but due to incapacity of the trustor dad, who is one of the creators of the trust. Now, kind of tying in with that type of notice, the 1606 1.7 notice, here is a question out of Los Angeles where someone is confused about language in the notice, and I want to clear things up right right now. They asked, once the trustee serves notice to the beneficiaries, do the beneficiaries have to respond in a certain time period in order to receive the benefits of what they're going to receive from the trust? I'll say, first of all, no. There's no requirement that a beneficiary respond at all to the notice that's sent out by the trustee. Um, so here, the other thing is, what time period does a beneficiary have to actually challenge the trust 
if they think that something uh, was going on uh, to obtain the trust through fraud or threats or undue influence or because the person signed the trust and they did not have the mental competence to do so, maybe was suffering from severe dementia or Alzheimer's. Well, let me tell you what the actual statutory notice says and then break down what that means. This type of notice will say, warning, you may not bring an action to contest the trust more than 120 days from the date of this notification by the trustee is served upon you or 60 days from the day on which copies of the trust and its amendments are mailed or personally delivered to you during that 120-day period, whichever is later. So let's talk about that. The normal notice, if this notice is sent out with a copy of the trust and amendments, then there's a 120-day period because that's that would be the later amount. Um, then th- Now, if a copy is not sent out and it's the 120th day, then someone could request a copy of the terms of the trust on that 120th day, and now they get 60 more days plus however many days it takes for those copies to be sent out in order to respond. And the response would be filing some kind of action to contest the trust. So if you get a notice like that, it doesn't mean you have to do anything unless you think something's wrong with the trust or the way it was executed or someone used undue influence or fraud or the person uh, lacked the mental capacity to actually sign this trust document. The purpose of this notice is so that people cannot come back a year later, two years later, and file lawsuits trying to contest things. It's instead forcing them to come forward and contest things right up front if they think there's any problem with that. Now, we're getting ready to wind up the third segment of the show. Um, I thought I'd take a brief moment here and let you know that I do have seminars coming up on July 13th in my office. One is my Living Trust Seminar. I have a second seminar talking about Hegstat petitions, which are petitions to gather in loose property into a trust after someone died with the property outside of the trust. And then another seminar dealing with modifying irrevocable trusts to make changes that a surviving spouse and or children may want to change. They're all on July 13th, which is a Saturday morning. You can visit my website at lawbob.com for more information or visit Eventbrite and search for events on on uh, July 13th, and you'll find them there as well. I'll talk with you after the break. This is Attorney Bob Bergman. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio. Once again, your host, estate planning trust and probate law specialist, Attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, welcome back. We're on the last segment of the show today, and uh, I'm going to cover a few more of these situations that come from around the state. Uh, Hopefully, you'll hear something that's a benefit to you, 
and uh, and or someone that you know or someone that in your family that uh, is in a similar situation, and you can definitely um, pass on the information to them. So here is kind of a, an interesting situation that really kind of bleeds over into family law as well. It's amazing how many estate planning questions that people pose actually have family law implications. Here, there was a marriage that was 30 years. Two minors are still in the house. I, this is wife, is the custodial parent. Husband quit his job, spent most of the assets, and sold the home. Mom was a stay-at-home mom. Now husband's living off his mother's trust, of which he is the trustee and beneficiary. He claims he has no income to pay child support. Can I get any of the money in the trust for support? Here, that's an excellent question. Um, if this person is owed support, if they go to court and and basically sue for a support obligation from the husband uh, because he's essentially abandoned his family, even if there's a trust set up for him by his mother uh, where he's the trustee and beneficiary, um, what things like spousal and child support are what we call exception creditors in California law, meaning that you cannot hide behind the walls of an irrevocable trust set up for you uh, by a parent, for example, and refuse to pay the obligations that you have, legal obligations for child and spousal support. For this person, I would recommend they engage a family lawyer to take the husband to court to get a support order in place, and then that support order should be able to be served on the husband as the trustee, ordering him to pay the support order. Failure to do that could lead to the husband being cited for contempt of court and even though I'm not a family lawyer, my understanding is that if you refuse to pay um, support payments when you have the means to do that, you can actually spend time as a guest of the county for the failure to do that. In any event, that's kind of what I would generally recommend this person do, is start with a family lawyer to find out whether you could have rights to actually lay claim to monies from a trust set up for the husband who it sounds like basically abandoned and has completely screwed over his spouse and his minor children. And yes, that's me editorializing. I, I find that kind of behavior uh, despicable. Uh, hopefully there's others of you out there that agree with me. If you don't agree with me, that's fine. We'll just agree to disagree about that. Now here's someone who says, I own several houses I'm planning to have an attorney prepare a living trust. Don't know what fees the county charges. Please advise. Okay. I think what the person may be talking about is the fees charged in order to record deeds transferring the title of these several houses into the ownership of the trust. We'll start first with someone's personal residence. The transfer of a personal residence from the person's name into their trust will trigger fees from the recorder's office 
typically on the range of about $25 to $30. It depends on the county you're in, but that's just a regular fee. There's no additional fees. Um, There's no documentary transfer tax fees, no county or city transfer fees, because the transfer itself is not considered a change in ownership, and, uh, and it doesn't trigger a reassessment, and there's also no additional fees other than the typical recording fees for a deed. For the other properties, presumably rental properties, it will be the same as for a personal residence. The difference is that each one of those rental properties will have an additional $75 fee imposed on that transfer. This is a state law, went into effect um, January of last year, and what it does is the $75 goes to the state to pay for affordable housing, which, of course, we know that means that Sacramento will take that money and spend it on whatever they want. Again, editorializing, but all I have to do is point at the high-speed rail in the Central Valley, um, and I will say no more. Now, here's an interesting question, and I'm going to end today on this one here. What if a person signed a quitclaim deed which was filed with the county, then later signed a grant deed for the same property to another person? Well, let's ask the question, why would somebody do that unless they were trying to deceive one or the other of the people? The quitclaim deed, if it was recorded, means that That person no longer owns the property at all. They've given away any interest they have. If they then sign a grant deed to someone else, that grant deed has no legal effect whatsoever because the person doesn't own the property anymore. So the grant deed would be invalid. Well, that's it for today. Um, This is attorney Bob Bergman. Hope you enjoyed the show. Feel free to contact me if you'd like, 408-247-0444. I have a lot of people coming to my seminars and calling me now, and I like knowing that there's at least a few people listening to me out there. So until next week, this is attorney Bob Bergman. Talk with you then. Goodbye. You've been listening to Plan Your Estate Radio with estate planning attorney Bob Bergman. For more information on today's program or to schedule a consultation, visit lawbob.com, where you'll also find information on his upcoming estate planning seminars, L-A-W-B-O-B, lawbob.com, or call his office in San Jose, 408-247-0444. That's 408-247-0444. And be sure to tune in next week for more Plan Your Estate Radio. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of this station and are for informational purposes only and should not be construed to be legal, financial, or tax advice. Seek appropriate legal advice regarding your particular situation. Attorney Bob Bergman does not offer any guarantees with regard to the outcome of your legal matter. Prior results in other cases do not guarantee a similar outcome in your case. All rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.